Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. As he said, my name is Brian Counts. If we've not had a chance to meet, I look forward to doing that. Um, it's a privilege of mine to serve as one of the pastors here at this church. And if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. We're going to start at verse 15 and read all the way through verse 29. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. As we think about Thanksgiving this week, let me tell you to all of you how thankful we are for you, how thankful we are for the elders of this church, for the staff of this church, for each one of you, for what God's doing in your lives, for what He's doing in my life, for what He's doing in the life of this church. We are grateful for it. Let me try to set the stage for you this morning before we read God's Word by giving you maybe a little taste of why we need it. Uh, If you had to pick a word to describe the people of our day and age and our time and place and space, I wonder if the word exhausted would not be near the top of the list. How often do you hear as you talk to friends, as you talk to coworkers, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. There's lots of reasons that we are an exhausted people. One of the chief ones, though, I think might not be as obvious as some others. And I think it comes from constantly having to create, recreate, define, redefine who you are. There are no anchors to hold on to, to define yourself. And so it's up to you, it's up to me to define our identities, to define who we are. That's a very different experience, is it not, from previous generations. If you had lived uh, practically anywhere in the world, practically any other time, you probably would have lived where your parents lived. You probably would have lived where your grandparents lived. Your great-grandparents, your great-great-great-grandparents lived. You were probably surrounded by people who spoke one language and had one history and one worldview. You probably uh, were engaged in the same profession or job as your father and grandfather and great-grandfather. This identity came to you from outside of yourself. It was received. You didn't have to do anything. It was just who you are and who you were going to be and who you were always going to be. Now, that has its advantages and it has its drawbacks as well to have your identity come from the outside in. Now, in our day and age, whatever your father or mother or grandfather did, that job might not even exist anymore. We're surrounded by multiple worldviews and cultures and languages, whereas previous generations couldn't have imagined all of the differences that we are exposed to all the time. And not only that, in our day and age, and I want you to hear this closely because it's so important to understanding our time, in our day and age, the highest good, the greatest good, the greatest duty you owe yourself in the world is to look inside of you to discover who you are and to let no one and nothing tell you otherwise. The best life, the highest good, is to let your identity flow from the inside out. Previous times, that identity was outside in. In our day and age, it's not possible. And it's even the highest good, the best life, to look inside and let your identity go from the inside out. Now, that has its advantages and drawbacks as well, too. We could list out many of the drawbacks together of having your identity flow from the inside out. One, if you are nothing more than who you are on the inside, nothing more than your desires, well, what do you do when your desires are in conflict? Who are you then? What about when your desires change or shift? 
And if only you can validate you and no one else can do that, then can there be any real relationships? Can there be any real love? If self-freedom and definition is the greatest thing, then love is excluded by definition. Because to love is to say, I restrict my freedom for the sake of someone else. We could list out many, many more, but ultimately personal identity formation in our day and age is an unending and unachievable mission. It's a fool's game. That's what makes it so exhausting. We're left to try to cobble together our identity from all sorts of places. Maybe you know the exhaustion that comes from it. Listen to these lyrics from songwriter Bill Maloney. He puts it this way, every mask you ever wore, every image you portrayed, every lie that you put forth, all the trinkets that you bought, every scene and every click, all you cobbled together to define yourself with. Is that our lives today? A constant grab bag of pulling from masks and images and lies and trinkets and scenes and clicks to try to make some kind of self-identity. Maybe you feel the weight and exhaustion of it. I don't think the answer is just to go back to a traditional identity where it's given from human sources, from the outside in. We need something greater than either one. That's where we need Galatians 3, 15 to 29. Let's read it together. This is God's Word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, into your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the, for if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Father, we've prayed just a moment ago, but we want to stop and ask your favor again, that as we spend time uh, now, listening to your word, that you would bless it as an act of worship, that as we have come and experienced the incredible grace of speaking to you, as Chris said, that we would now experience the incredible grace of you speaking to us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
I want to share with you two points this morning. First, an enduring promise, and second, that changes everything. An enduring promise that changes everything. So first, an enduring promise. Look with me back at verse 15. Paul says, to give a human example. In other words, to understand what he's about to say, we have to remind ourselves what he just said. He's been hammering away throughout Galatians, and in particular in the passage we looked at just last week, verses 10 through 14, that no one, no one can be justified by the law. No one can gain a good standing before God by what they do, but that anyone can be justified by faith. Anyone can gain good standing in God's sight by nothing but faith alone. No one can be justified by the law, but anyone can be justified by faith. That's what's been going on this whole time in Galatians. Paul had planted these churches. People had snuck in after he left and said, faith in Jesus is necessary, but not enough. You have to add to it. You have to add to it keeping the Old Testament law. Paul's been saying, no, no, no. Not the Old Testament law, not anything else at all is needed or even possible to gain God's smile. It has to come by grace through faith. And now he's going to take another run at it by giving a human example about contracts or what he calls here covenants. Covenants are promises sovereignly administered by God, a promise that God makes. He's going to make an example, though, with human contracts and covenants and promises. So look at it this way. The Judaizers who infiltrated the churches after Paul left, they were like good attorneys. And they pulled out a contract. And they said, Exhibit A. This is the contract, what the Bible calls a covenant, that God made with Moses, they say. It's called the covenant of the law. And they would say, according to this contract, God promises His blessing on all people who keep His commandments. The Ten Commandments, the dietary laws, etc. According to a law, they said, according to this contract with Moses... If you obey, you'll be blessed. Paul quoted in uh, the passage last week, verse 12, the one who does them shall live by them, a quote from Leviticus. Now it's Paul's turn. He's also a good attorney in this case. He pulls out exhibit B, and he says, yes, you've got your contract with Moses. I've got one made with Abraham. And this one with Abraham is older than the one with Moses, 430 years older. And it says that the righteous shall live by faith. Your contract might say the righteous shall live by works. Mine says the righteous shall live by faith, and it's older, and God would never contradict Himself. So whatever your contract with Moses means, it can't mean that you can be justified, gain good standing with God based on what you do, because God's not going to make two contradictory promises. They have to work together. Paul says. That's what he's saying. God made a binding contract with Abraham that the righteous shall live by faith, and it's older than Moses's. So what was this covenant with Abraham, this one that endures and keeps going? Well, we read in the first chapters of Genesis that God made the world perfect, right? When it was started, when He created it, everything was right. Our relationships with God, our relationships with others, there was no guilt, there was no shame, there was no hiding. Our relationship with creation worked. There were no thorns as we gardened. There were no problems and obstacles in work like we encounter today. Everything was beautiful. Everything was right. But Adam and Eve broke it all. When they sinned, a curse flowed out. 
their relationship and the, their descendants, you and I, their descendants' relationship with God was broken. Our relationships with each other, we cover up all the time because we have plenty to hide without Jesus. Our relationship with the world and work is broken as well. But God promised almost right away that He'll fix it. In Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to send the seed of the woman, right? He promises right away I'm going to fix this. And in Genesis 12, we begin to get more of a picture of what God's fixing it all is going to look at. Because out of the blue, He calls this man named Abraham. This man who lived far away from what would become the promised land. This man who we assume knew nothing about God, nothing about all this stuff. He was a Gentile pagan. God came and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to give you and your offspring, your descendants, land. And we could have a whole other sermon series on what that is about. But he said, also... I am going to give you offspring, even though you're old, I'm going to give you offspring that will bless all nations. I'm going to fix everything that's broken through you and your descendants, Abraham. It's not just a promise with Abraham, and it's not just a promise with his physical descendants, but it would become a promise by which the whole world would be blessed. God is putting a stake in the ground and continuing to declare his intention that he's going to fix it all. And so it's important, though, to note that where God said in Genesis, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, that the word offspring, or literally there in the Hebrew, the word seed, is singular, not plural. Paul, in other words, says, through your descendant. Moses, when he wrote Genesis, said, through your descendant. God says, through your one offspring, not all of them, not all your descendants, but through your descendant, all nations on earth will be blessed. In other words, Paul's getting out the fine print of the contract to show these Judaizers just what God meant in this promise to Abraham. He's saying that the promise is actually with Jesus Christ. That the promise with Abraham goes all the way down the generations and is fulfilled in Abraham's one descendant, Jesus Christ. That the blessing to all nations will come through Jesus Christ. And how would Abraham receive such a blessing? How could he possibly know such goodness? Because he had been such an amazing man? I don't think he was so amazing before God came to him, and if you read Genesis, he certainly wasn't amazing after God came to him. He was guilty of great sin even then. It came to him by faith alone. We read it in our assurance of pardon this morning from Romans chapter 4. Paul makes the same point there, that Abraham believed God, Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Apart from what he did, it was a gift. He didn't have to earn it or it wouldn't be a gift. It would be his due, but he couldn't earn it. And so God gave it as a gift for nothing but faith, faith that in and of itself was a gift. I hope you know and can memorize Genesis 15:6. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Tattoo it on your heart, so to speak. It's one of the most glorious sentences in any language. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the point Paul is saying here is not whether or not you are a physical descendant of Abraham. 
There's privileges and blessings that come from that, Paul says later in Romans. But the ultimate point is not whether you are a physical descendant of Abraham, a Jew or a Gentile. The point is whether or not you trust the one descendant of Abraham, the one who was promised, the one who then comes along and keeps all the laws from the Old Testament. He fulfills both the Abraham covenant and the Moses covenant. Everything finds its resolution and fulfillment and perfection in Jesus. Everything. This promise with Abraham, that's what it's all about. Are you in Christ? Do you place your faith in the one who was to come and has come and will come again? If you don't have faith in Jesus, you're not a descendant of Abraham. If you have faith in Jesus, you are a descendant of Abraham. Jew, Gentile, white, black, male, female, young, old, living today, living in the past, living in the future. That's how you become a descendant of Abraham, which is what we want to be. We want to be his spiritual offspring, much more so than even his physical offspring. So if that's the whole point of the Abrahamic covenant and what Paul's saying, then the natural next question comes in verse 19. Why then the law? Why did God even make this promise with Moses? If he made this great promise with Abraham that was never superseded or abrogated or canceled, why did he come 430 years later through Moses at Mount Sinai and make this other covenant about all these laws? Paul says the law was and is and always will be for the sake of the promise. Verse 19, the law was added because of transgression. In other words, the law was added to show you your need for a Savior. The law was added to show me my need for a Savior. It's the same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Through the law comes a knowledge of sin. When you look at yourself compared to God's perfect standard, you begin to recognize all the places in your life that fall short. Places you didn't even know fell short until you saw God's perfect law. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is for the sake of promise. It shows us our need. And just as an aside, this paragraph here, there's this interesting sentence about angels and and an intermediary. What does all that mean? There's a verse in Deuteronomy, just as an aside, that says the angels were with the Lord on Mount Sinai. The angels were present when God put this law into place. That's what Paul's referring to there. But all that leads to another question. Verse 21, he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And then he says, certainly not, which is a favorite expression of Paul's that he uses when he talks about grace and how it can be misunderstood. He uses it at least, I think, a couple times in Galatians. Again, in Romans chapter 6, if you're familiar with that, shall we continue to sin? because we are under grace and not under law? Certainly not. Absolutely not. Is the law contrary to promises? No. Because if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, Paul says. In other words, God never meant the law to be life-giving. God never meant for you to find life through your performance. God never meant for you to find life through how together you have it. That's freedom. God never meant for us to find life there. Verse 22, it says, The law imprisoned everything, or maybe better translated, everyone under sin. The law imprisoned us under sin so that we might see that need. Law and promise, not ultimately contradictory, but ultimately complementary, as the law shows us that need. The law is 
Love God and love others perfectly. That's all. That's all. You see, God knew we couldn't keep it. He even says in Deuteronomy chapter 31, I know you're not going to keep this, but you don't know that. God knows we can't keep it. We're slow to learn that we can't keep it. So the law comes and says, you can't find life through your performance. You can't find eternal life there, but you can find it through faith alone in Jesus. So my question to you right here this morning is, do you know where the law is exposing you right now? Do you know how God's perfect standard is exposing you? Maybe it's something that we confessed this morning in the confession of sin. Maybe it's something else. Where does your love for God and love for others fall short? And my follow-up question is, are you trusting Christ in that place? That place where you fall short, are you hiding it? Are you covering it up from God or others? Or do you know the freedom that comes from saying, the descendant of Abraham perfectly kept that law, died in my place so I don't have to be punished, and has given me life? Do you know where the law exposes you, and do you know how Christ heals you in that spot right there? Let me continue to try to show you this by giving you an illustration and then a quote, kind of first a silly illustration and then a serious quote. So here's the silly illustration. Baseball fans, Chicago Cubs fans, I'm sorry for you, but do you remember back in the 1980s, if you're a little bit older, there were two players for the Cubs, one on third base named Vance Law, and one on first base named Mark Grace. <laughs> Mark Grace came before Vance Law in the batting order, just as Abraham's covenant of grace came before the covenant of law with Moses. Grace before law on offense. And then on defense, Vance Law at third base. Mark Grace at first base. Batterson's a rocketing shot down to third base to Law, over to Grace, for the out. That's how it works. Law, then grace, for the out. Grace comes first, then law, then grace. I thank Phil Riken for that illustration. Let me give you a little bit more serious one here, though. The law makes us hungry for grace. Martin Luther said it this way. He says, there is a common proverb that hunger is the best cook. As the dry earth covets the rain, even so the law makes afflicted souls thirst after Christ. To such, Christ savors sweetly. To them, He is nothing else but joy, consolation, and life. And indeed, Christ requires thirsty souls, whom He most lovingly and graciously allures and calls to Him. When He says, come unto me and I will give you rest. He delights, therefore, to water these dry grounds. He comforts those that are bruised by the law. Therefore, the law is not against the promises of God. That's Martin Luther. The law puts us in bondage. It imprisons us. It acts as a guardian, a teacher to show us our need, to show us Christ who alleviates and meets every need we have. That's the enduring promise. No one can be justified by works, but anyone can be justified by faith. That means, as we've said and will continue to say until Jesus comes back, our standing with God does not depend upon our performance, that your sin and your righteousness are irrelevant. That's a bold statement. When it comes to your standing with God, your sin and your righteousness are irrelevant. They don't matter. You can be a murderer like the Apostle Paul and by faith have standing with God. 
or you can be someone who saved the lives of thousands, but only by faith will you have standing with God. The good news is you and I don't live off a copay system with God, someone once said. When you go to the hospital for a surgery, the debt you would rack up with insurance would be unpayable, right? No way you could ever work to pay off the debt the hospital would assign for a procedure and weeks in recovery without insurance. But we have copays, we have insurance, and that copay compared to the full price suddenly feels affordable. It feels like, oh wow, okay, I can pay this, this is, this is an affordable amount. And how many of us think our salvation with God works that way? We think, oh wow, God paid nearly all of it, but he just leaves me with this copay. I just have to keep making this $5 a visit copay or this $50, or $500, or $1,000, or whatever it is. But the longer you live that way, the more that copay seems to increase and increase and increase and feel unmeetable, feel unachievable. And God says, no, you don't live that way. I didn't cancel most of your debt and put you on a payment plan or give you a copay. No, he says, I paid it all. It is all by grace. Your sin and your righteousness are irrelevant. You don't have to add anything. You don't have to add your spiritual disciplines. You don't have to add your doctrine. You don't have to add that place of your life. You think you have it all together, your religious performance. If anything, sometimes don't we have to repent of our good works? And what I mean is we have to repent of trusting in our good works, even a little bit before Jesus. Repent of your evil works and repent of your good works. We have to repent of it all. But we find freedom when we do. That is the enduring promise. Second, let's look at how the promise transforms, changes everything. What does that say, that enduring promise, say to an exhausted generation constantly crafting their own identity? First, it changes your relationship with yourself. If the enduring promise to Abraham has been met in Jesus, and it's yours by faith alone, it changes your relationship with yourself. You no longer have to define yourself by how well you do at work, at parenting, at being a spouse, at your job, whatever. It doesn't matter. That's not the definition of who you are. It means freedom from trying to define who you are by who approves of you. Do you know that kind of self-definition where you try to craft an identity based upon who likes you? It's an unending, unachievable prison. This gives us freedom from that. It means freedom from trying to define who you are by what you own. That's a prison. It means freedom from trying to define who you are by what you want and your changing desires. It means freedom from unendingly trying to create your own identity because in Jesus, with this enduring promise from Abraham, we receive an identity that we can't achieve and therefore you can't lose. You receive an identity that you can't achieve and therefore you cannot lose. And so where in your life do you see self-hatred? And we all do. Where in your life do you hate yourself? This changes your relationship with yourself and frees you from that because of the grace found for that failure. Instead, there's freedom. Where in your life do you see arrogance and pride thinking, well, here's this little corner of my life where I've got it together. There's freedom from the bondage of that pride as well when you repent of that. 
It changes your relationship with yourself. It changes your relationship with others. And here I want to dive back into the text a little bit. Look with me at verse 27. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now he's not saying we know that you gain this new standing with God by baptism. Because he just said in the previous verse that we're sons of God through faith. But he's saying baptism is an external representation of this internal reality that we're talking about. He says, we have put on Christ. Think about that metaphor. How often do we dress to try to craft an identity for ourselves and for everybody else? He's saying, craft your identity by putting on Christ. You have put on Christ. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's past tense. We have put on Christ. This is our new identity. This is the way that we are defined. It covers us up and gives us a new identity. And then verse 28 He goes on to say there's no Jew or Greek in Christ. There's no slave or free. There's no man or woman, but we are all one because Christ is greater to our identity than any of those things or anything else. These are radical verses where Paul says, you, church, are a new kind of humanity because throughout history, of course, today as well, people are divided over race. They're divided over class. They're divided over gender. Socrates, to give you an ancient example, he once prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. Listen to this. He said, thank you that I was born human being and not a beast. Thank you that I was born a man and not a woman. Thirdly, that I was born a Greek and not a barbarian. Israel, not much better. This is not in the Bible, but a written prayer from an ancient Jew, first century. Blessed art thou, O Lord God, our King, King of the universe, who hast not made me a foreigner. Blessed art thou, O Lord God, our King, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. History, humanity, divided, race, class, gender. Not an ancient problem, worldwide, modern problem, along all of those same lines. What Paul is saying is that all of us, rich, poor, slave, free, man, woman, black, white, Jew, Greek, whatever it might be, are equal in our need and inability. We're equal in our need and inability, and we have the exact same access to the grace that God freely provides. No one is advantaged or privileged at the foot of the cross. In every other sphere we live in, people are advantaged or privileged, not at the foot of the cross. In all our spheres, people are disadvantaged, not at the foot of the cross. No one is more disadvantaged there than anyone else but we are all equal at the foot of the cross. Paul says there's no Greek or Jew, there's no racial differences in Christ. As much momentum as there is to push us into racial tribes, the gospel pulls us back out of that. Paul says no difference in terms of class or rank. In his day and age, they called that slave or free. Now the poor envy the rich, the rich are afraid of the poor. Throughout history and societies, Where you're from, what you do, how much you earn can determine so much of your life, it seems. But the gospel undoes that. Snobbery is forbidden. The rich don't need Jesus any less, and the poor don't need him more. And the poor aren't more deserving of grace than the rich. The rich can't buy their way in. And then he says there's no man or woman. A remarkable statement of equality of the sexes, which is the testimony of Scripture throughout. No man or woman in Christ. Both are equal in God's image. Both are equal in salvation. In other words, like we said, 
The church is a new humanity, and the old distinctions don't matter like they do in the world. He was fired up against the Judaizers because they were bringing these boundaries back in, and they were saying, Jews here, Gentiles there, even in the church. Paul says, no, that's not the gospel. That's out of step with the gospel. This changes our relationships with each other, doesn't it? And of course, don't hear what Paul isn't saying. Other passages, he describes what it means to be male and female, husband, wife, master, slave, all of these things. What he's saying is the diversity doesn't kill the unity. And the things that unite us are primary right here in this passage. That there are these things when it comes to salvation. When you become a Christian, you're still male, you're still female, you're still white, black, Asian, Jew, Greek, man, whatever it might be. But in other places, he's saying, and right here he's saying, I mean, you can be this kind of unified without killing that kind of diversity as well. So how do you see others in the church? Do you see them primarily as male, female, young, old, new here, been here a long time? How do you see others in the church? Do you see others as more deserving than yourself of grace? They're not. Do you see others as less deserving of grace than you? They're not. That's what Paul is getting at here. And lastly, it changes our relationship with God. In Christ, we are all sons of God, verse 26. It's important here that he says sons and not sons and daughters. And he's not minimizing the fact that women can be daughters of God. But at this time, only sons could inherit property. And so by saying that we're all sons, he's again making a stab at this kind of equality at the cross. He said before that we were slaves held prisoner by the gospel. Now he's saying that we're sons. Before God was a judge who condemned us. Now he's a father who accepts and loves us. We no longer have to feel distant from him, cut off from him, because he has done everything in Jesus to bring us as close as a son. Nothing can change that promise. It's a promise to Abraham. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Nothing can change it. Not the covenant with Moses, not your performance, not your status, not your gender, not your race, nothing. So where are you a mess? And I hope you know where you are a mess, because you are. Where are you a mess? God's grace meets you there. Where do you think you have it together? God's grace can tear that down too, and needs to. God's grace can meet us in both places. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would tear down those places where we think or feel or act like something in our life is more fundamental to who we are than your grace. Father, I pray that all of us would bring all of ourselves to you. I pray that all of ourselves would find healing in the gospel. I pray that you would take these words that you wrote so long ago and apply them more thoroughly to my heart, to all of our hearts. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let us be changed from the inside out. May we find everything about who we are from you. And may we enjoy it, I pray. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.